First Peter chapter four. First Peter four. We'll begin reading at verse seven. Let's all hear the Lord's word. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And God will add his blessing to the reading from his word for his name's sake. Please bow with me for a moment. Let's ask the Lord for his help in his word today. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father in heaven, we turn our hearts heavenward before we take up the word of the Lord. We confess we need the Holy Spirit. He is the one that enlightens the understanding and no one but him. He's the one that gives the grace to grasp spiritual realities. He's the one that gives the words that need to be said. So now we pray, fill us with the Holy Ghost. Control us from start to finish. Oh, may there be something of heavens opened and the, the glory of God descending upon us. Create that holy hush that comes from the awareness that God is in the midst. Speak to us, Lord. Pass us not by. In the Savior's name we pray this. Amen. Amen. I want to draw your attention once again this morning to those words of the Holy Spirit found at the beginning of verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand, therefore. That would have certainly been a word of comfort and strength for these believers who were suffering unjustly at the hands of their enemies. They were, remember, way back from chapter 1, they were in heaviness. They were in deep sorrow because of these fiery trials. But when Peter tells them that the end of all things is drawing near, it would have reminded them that their suffering and their sorrow is not going to go on forever. There was an end in sight. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. All of the pain, all of this abuse from the ungodly, the sorrows of life would come to an end. Indeed, it's at hand, he says. It's drawing near. As I pointed out last week, Peter wasn't dealing so much here with their immediate circumstances as if he was telling them that he had gotten a revelation from God and that their persecutions were about to end because Christ was going to return. 
That's not what that's about. Peter didn't have it wrong. His eschatology wasn't wrong. He got this information from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit knows exactly when the Lord is going to return. That's not what Peter's getting at. It's immediate. It's going to be any time now, just around the corner. Peter was simply reminding them of the big picture. He was dealing with the end of time. For if the end of all things is at hand, then that would also mean that the end of time is at hand. But he's looking at time from God's vantage point, where a thousand years is as one day. So, from that viewpoint, in the grand scheme of things, all of our trials are really brief. Because life itself. Time itself is brief, fleeting. But when Peter says that the end of time is drawing near, in essence, he's also saying that the beginning of eternity is drawing near. I'm using the term eternity in its popular sense, where it's used to refer to the never-ending existence of the soul after death, but especially to that place, that state in which men will exist forever. Eternity, strictly speaking, is an attribute of God. He only hath immortality. God alone is eternal. But that's not what we're dealing with here. It's this God's eternity entering into that state of eternal existence. It will either be a case of everlasting life or everlasting punishment. Eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. As he's writing to believers, Peter is using the reality of eternity as a motivation to, for them to, as we saw earlier, to live for the will of God and not to live for the lusts of the flesh. To live to please the Lord and not to please self. That's what he's getting at all along. The Puritan Thomas Manton said that, a man's greatest care should be for that place where he lives longest. Therefore, eternity should be his scope. Along those same lines, a more modern-day author, A.W. Tozer, he gave similar advice when he wrote, We who live in this nervous age would be wise to meditate on our lives and our days long and often before the face of God and on the edge of eternity. For we are made for eternity as certain as we are made for time. And as responsible moral beings, we must deal with both. We must deal with time and we must deal with eternity. That's what Peter is doing in verse 7 when he says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore. What follows the therefore down to verse 11 is a description of a believer who is really living in light of eternity. That's the theme I'm tracing through this 
short passage, living in light of eternity. As I stated the case in my first point last week, the end of time and our entrance into eternity call us to a holy life. The Word of God constantly appeals to those twin truths in order to urge God's people to spurn the world and to live for God because you're living in light of eternity. You're, you're made not just for time but for eternity and you want to, to deal with that. You're living on the edge always of eternity. Just a step between you and death and God's eternity. When you live that way it determines what kind of life you live. We are to redeem the time because the days are evil. And since only our works for Christ will follow us, that's what John says in Revelation, the, the works of the Lord do follow them. Only our works for Christ will follow us into eternity. How earnest we should be to do the Lord's will and not our own. And that will is contrary to His. That, in essence, is true holiness. Doing the Lord's will and not our own will. We went on to see that when we live in light of eternity, we will maintain fellowship with God and with God's people. I only had time to deal with the first part of that point from verse 7, the first point of application that Peter makes after reminding them about the approach of eternity was that they should be sober and watchful unto prayer. Both those words, sober and watchful, modifying prayer. Surely that will be the natural outcome when we live in light of eternity. What will make heaven heavenly to us is not living where there are streets paved with gold. What will make heaven heavenly will not be having the mansions that he's prepared for us. It will not be seeing the angels and not even seeing our loved ones once again. What will make heaven heavenly is that we will enjoy unbroken communion with the Lord Amen. for eternity. Unbroken communion with the Lord for eternity. That's heaven. So as we live in light of that, we will continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving as Paul put it. So vital, that is, to a holy life. But I turn this morning to the second half of that point. Living in light of eternity not only means that we will maintain fellowship with God, but that we will maintain fellowship with God's people. Those who live in light of eternity will maintain fellowship with God's people. That's the truth that Peter is addressing in verses 8 through 11. I have used the word fellowship not simply because it sounds nice from a homiletical standpoint. It does, but that's not my main reason in using it. 
I use it because Peter is dealing primarily here with love between the brethren. Love between the brethren as both the manifestation and the protection of that fellowship. Remember that the word fellowship in the New Testament is used to denote the relationship that exists between Christians because they are all members of one church known as the body of Christ. Everyone who's a believer is a member of that body. doesn't matter what denominational tag they may take as long as it's an orthodox tag, as long as it's biblical. They all belong to the one body. They're all members of the body of Jesus Christ. And this relationship that's between them is fundamentally a spiritual relationship because it comes, it arises from being united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit at the time of the new birth. That's how it comes about. The work of the Holy Ghost uniting that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, dead in sin, uniting them to Jesus Christ, spiritually uniting them, and then the Holy Ghost taking up a permanent dwelling place in them. That creates this fellowship. Members of the same body. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5. Listen carefully. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. That's a key statement. Members... Every one members one of another. Right there you find both the source and the substance of fellowship in the church. The source of our fellowship is being in Christ. And the substance of our fellowship is that we are so united that we are mutually dependent on each other. We can't do without each other. Anyone that thinks otherwise is in direct opposition to the plain statements of Scripture. You cannot do without the members of the body. You cannot go it alone. You cannot take yourself off. If you are living in light of eternity, you cannot take yourself off of the body of Christ and go off-grid and live on your own. You cannot and you will not do that. If you live in light of eternity, it has been so ordained by God that we are mutually dependent upon each other. As Paul put it in his first epistle to the Corinthian church, each member of the body needs the other member in order to function as it should. It gives that particular illustration of uh, the feet needing the eyes. Yeah, the feet walk, but they need the eyes to tell it where to go. 
The fellowship of God's people, therefore, is not about, it's not about popular notion. It's not about having church picnics and church socials. It's not only about having a, uh, a united opinion about various things. Or having the same feelings and sentiments that a certain group of people have. It's about a living and intimate union that we have with each other that arises from the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us through our union with Jesus Christ. So fellowship is not about uniting to the same church. Agreeing with the doctrines of a particular body of believers and being loyal to a local assembly. Now, I'm not saying that's not a part of what fellowship is about. But fellowship at its heart is about the members of the body of Christ because they are mutually dependent upon each other. It's about them caring one for another, loving one another through thick and thin. Now, that's fellowship. Note what Peter says. Living in light of eternity, a holy life, and above all things, have fervent charity, love, among yourselves. He's talking to Christians. The end of time is near. Eternity is just before you. Therefore, therefore, have fervent love among yourselves and make sure it's above all things. Make sure it heads the list in importance. Above everything else. He's dealing with the life in the church. And whenever the Word of God takes up dealing with the life in the church, it's automatically dealing with its effectiveness in the world. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And how we live or don't live it has a direct bearing upon the effectiveness of our living in this world. Paul says the same thing in essence to the Corinthian church when he said at the end of chapter 13, now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest. I can only come to the conclusion that love among God's people, fellowship, is the great hallmark of holiness. Love among God's people is the great hallmark of holiness in the church. And that only makes sense when you remember several things. 
the Word of God says that love is the fulfilling of the law. When the Lord Jesus Christ summarized the Ten Commandments, He used the word love. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Holiness of life is fundamentally about living like Christ. Christ-likeness, who ultimately, perfectly, did the will of God. And it was Christ who said in John chapter 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. The key phrase, as I have loved you, you make sure you love one another. And he goes on to underscore the testimony that this kind of love would bring to the world. The very next verse, by this, by this love that you show among yourselves, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Moreover, Peter indicates that this love among the Lord's people is to be fervent. And above all things, have fervent love, charity, among yourselves. The, the Greek word fervent literally means stretched out. It's used only twice in the New Testament. Someone stretching because it's something that they earnestly want, they desire. They're stretching for it. And they keep stretching for it because they're eager to have it. It carries, therefore, this idea of eagerness and earnestness and something that is constantly being done because you are eager and you are earnest about it. There's no flip to it, a switch where you flip it off and you flip it on. It's constant. I said there were two references. The other reference is in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter is imprisoned. In verse 5 you read, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing. There's the same word. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. It was continual, earnest prayer that was going on for Peter. Then note that word have, have, have fervent love among yourselves. Well, the word have could be translated two different ways. Have, the word have can mean hold, hold on to, or it can mean have it in possession. Either Peter is saying that they already had an earnest love among themselves and he wanted them to hold on to it, or he's saying, and I think this is a real meaning, that he wants the love that is among them to be fervent. 
Yes, you have love, but the kind of love I want you to be in possession of is this eager, earnest, constant love. By the way you slice it, the clear point being made is that when God's people live in light of eternity, when they are eager and they are earnest about holiness of life, they will be eager and earnest about showing love among themselves. Where that's not found, there's not earnestness about holiness. Would, would we think otherwise when the Lord Jesus Christ summarized the Ten Commandments, that declaration of God saying, I am holy? And what sin actually is? He would summarize all of that with the word love. Now the rest of this section down to verse 11 shows us three areas in which this love among God's people is to be seen. I will only deal with one of those this morning. Living in light of eternity, having fervent love among yourselves, maintaining this will be seen in forgiving the sins of your brethren. Immediately after saying, having fervent love among yourselves, he says, for... Charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Literally, there's no definite article in the Greek text. Literally, love will cover a multitude of sins. The word cover means to put a veil over something in order to hide it from sight. This is love at work. It puts a veil over something to hide it in sight. Peter's quoting from an Old Testament text, and that text will give light on what he's actually getting at here. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, Solomon said, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love, in contrast, covers all sins. Where a man is under the influence of hatred, he's ready and willing to look for, to search out, to find the sins and the faults of others, to magnify them, and so in doing that, as he uncovers them as much as he can, he creates strife. That's hatred. But when he's under the influence of love, he pulls a veil over the faults and failings of his brother, his sister, and treats them as if they had never happened. Quite frankly, that's what's there. Treating them as if they never happened. The sins Peter's referring to are the offenses committed by one Christian toward another Christian. That's the context. And to the degree that fervent love, that this earnest, 
unceasing love is at work in a believer's heart to that degree he will treat the offenses of other Christians against him as if they did not happen. What's that mean? It means that love, this love, doesn't hold grudges, doesn't store things up in the memory, doesn't have a list that's been compiled. Love doesn't try to get even. Remember, it covers it. It certainly doesn't go looking for sins in other Christians. And when it finds them, it doesn't broadcast it to all the world. See what he's saying? thought came to me as I was studying Joseph New Testament Joseph when he thought that Mary now with child before they were married thought that she had been unfaithful to him that's the only thing he could make any sense of it the scripture says being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. I'm going to cover this up. Being a just man, it was grounded in holiness. I'm not going to publicly shame her and bring about a public divorce. His thinking was to put her away, to divorce her privately. Would to God that spirit existed more among the people of God? Yes. Amen. Solomon said that it's the spirit of hatred that goes looking for sin in other Christians. It's the spirit of hatred that wants to let everybody know what they've seen, what they've found. They're quite ready and happy. It seems sometimes they actually take delight in it to tell others about the faults they found or the offenses they've received by a fellow Christian. But the more you live in light of eternity, the more you take on board that answer that Christ gave to Peter's very interesting question. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 22, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto you, to thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. That was just a, a Hebrew expression that meant there was no limit to it. 
That truth applies to the Christian marriage, to the Christian family, to the body of Christ as a whole. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that you deny that offense has been given when it actually has. You're then giving another name to sin. That would be deceit and not love. You don't deny it. It doesn't mean that you are blind to sin that has been committed against you and ultimately against God. It it means certainly that because you do love that fellow believer, you will tell him his or her faults. You will tell them that you have been offended, you have been grieved by how you've been treated. So you know what Peter, this question here in Matthew 18, is Matthew 18 after all, if you're familiar with Matthew 18. Luke 17, verse 3, If thy brother, Christ, and if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Now love is going to follow the Lord's direction laid down in Matthew 18 for what a Christian is to do when another professing Christian sins against him. But I want you to see how careful Christ is to underscore the fact that love covers sin. Because what is the Christian supposed to do when another professing believer sins against him, offends him? He goes to him privately. Doesn't say, I mean, it's gotten to a point, you see, it's gotten to a point where something has got to be done. He cannot bear this any longer. So he's got, I, I've got to speak to him. But that's all he does. He speaks to that individual privately. That doesn't work. He then brings with him just two or three witnesses. Again, it's keeping the matter private. And if that doesn't work, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, then Christ says, You count him as a heathen. He's lost, he's not a member of the body of Christ. He's a pagan. But quite frankly, that's usually not the kind of offenses that God's people are dealing with on a regular basis that need to be covered with the veil of love. I mean, that's some heavy-duty stuff when you're saying you're now excommunicated. It's those sins... The sins that need to be covered. It's those sins of running roughshod over the feelings of other believers. The technical term would be inconsiderate. When you're inconsiderate, you run roughshod over people's feelings. You don't consider what impact it will have upon them. You just speak your mind, and if it hurts them, it hurts them. 
You don't really care. You're just interested in speaking your mind. Oh, that's a common sin found among the people of God. The needs of veil put over it. It's those sins of speaking down to or in a derogatory manner to a fellow Christian. Those sins arising from a critical, condemning spirit, which is always fault-finding. Remember, that's the spirit of hatred. Fault-finding, fault-finding. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's those sins of the tongue where we utter angry, harsh, and hurtful words to a fellow Christian. It's those sins of failing to hide their sins and choosing rather to harp on them over and over again. Now, I suppose I could have spent a lot of time on developing a longer list. But you and I both know these are common things among the people of God. You could understand why Peter said, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. Above all things. You can bank on it. Offenses will come. You will give offense. And offense will be given to you. You will sin against other believers, and other believers will sin against you. You'll do them wrong, and they'll do you wrong. Sometimes intentional, sometimes not intentional. But it's going to happen. It has happened. You know it right well. But if these sins are not covered by the veil of love, what will the end result be? The church and its fellowship will be plagued with strife, with bitterness, with resentment, and anything but fervent love. That is the natural outcome. It's the hatred that stirs up strife that refuses to cover sins. To let things just pass and as if it never happened. The edification of the people of God will be interfered with. It's a real detriment. Because Paul states in Ephesians 4, the body of Christ is edified in love. Or through love. 
But if love, as it's being described here, this fervent love and covering a multitude of sins is not practiced, it's going to harm the growth and the spiritual edification of God's people. And you would expect that. The Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of love, will be grieved, and His work will be quenched. The end result, there will be a church whose love for Christ and for others has grown cold, and one, therefore, that will be utterly unfit for the great purpose of showing and sharing both within and without the church the love of God won't be there. Tell you one thing, if there's not love within, it will be well nigh impossible to show any kind of genuine love without. It'll be phony, it'll be put on, fake as it gets. It's an act. It's pure hypocrisy. When there's not love covering a multitude of sins amongst God's people. But where a body of believers lives in light of eternity, where they are in earnest about hiding the sins of God's people, of treating them as if they had never happened, there you will find a display for all to see of the power of the gospel of grace. This is all about grace. What is grace? It's God's love shown to undeserving and ill-deserving sinners. Grace is about where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see, the Lord's people, where they are ready and willing to forgive 70 times 7, they will live in peace and harmony. You see, the strife, the strife occurs from both sides of the fence. If the love was perfect, you wouldn't be offending. Right? If it was perfect, you wouldn't offend anyone. You'd be perfectly considerate. You'd have that characteristic of the Almighty. But also, when the offense is given, if there was perfect love, there wouldn't be the wrong response to the offense. You would take it, think the best. But the fact is, there's no perfect love this side of glory. 
So this constant appeal is, he's, he's talking about holy life, about eternity. It's our works that follow us. So, cover the sins of the Lord's people. I have to say that nothing, nothing else but love can do this. Nothing else. Nothing else works. There's no way under the sun that you can cover a multitude of sins except by love. It's when you don't do that, you've got problems on your hands. You've got failed relationships. You have discord. Even faith, even faith by which the just live, really live, even faith, Paul says, worketh by love. You see, real love, biblical love, is all about doing whatever it takes in order that the one you love is blessed and benefited. That's your aim. You want to be a source of blessing to them. You want to be a source that benefits them. That's biblical love. Love always wants to give to those it loves. Our God is a loving God, and therefore He is a giving God. And the greatest giving he, His love has ever done for us is giving us Christ and forgiving our sins. He's done that. Let me ask you a few questions and I'll close. Has the Lord covered, has He put a veil over the multitude of your sins? Does he seek to tell the world about your sins and failures? Does he broadcast them? What would you think of a God who went and shared with the world your thought life, your deeds, your words? You conclude he must not love me to do that. Because love hides a multitude of sins. Does the Lord remember your sins? Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more, he says. I have no catalog that I keep. I have no book jotting down every time my people sin against me. Does the Lord ever become weary of forgiving you? Especially those same sins that are repeated. 
Does he ever become weary of forgiving you? Does he refuse to help you or give you any blessing because you keep sinning against him every day in word, thought, and deed to take our shorter catechism? Every day, does he, does he withhold? Does he stop blessing you? Does he stop? Every morning, do the mercies of God stop coming to you because of the multitude of your sins? His love covers all of our sins. And Jesus commanded that we love each other as he loved us. As John, in his first epistle, makes the point, chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. It's the mark, a characteristic mark of someone who's been born again, who's a Christian, who's a child of God. We love the brethren. We genuinely love them. And when you genuinely love the brethren, you genuinely forgive the brethren over and over and over again. You put a veil over their faults and failings. That's being like Christ. You can choose another path. You can keep finding the faults. Problem is, we forget. We've got our own boatload of sins that need forgiving. We, 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 we fail to see there's plenty of wrong that's there that we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to hide, to cover over. I found that it's so often the case. We want to be treated a certain way, but we forget that the other party wants to be treated that same way. This is how the Lord treats us. Loving as Jesus loved. And we want to be like the Lord. Don't we? Isn't that who we really want to be like? Isn't he the pattern? Loving as he loved? Do you realize how many times the Lord Jesus Christ put a veil over the sins of his disciples? How many times? Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. This is my constant longing and prayer. Oh, to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving tender and kind. 
have fervent love among yourselves. Where does that love come from? I mean, you, you, you realize this is just extraordinary. It's not natural. The natural response to being sinned against is to hit back, to take umbrage. This love is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it can be cultivated. It can grow. And that growth comes through communion with God. Communion with the Lord. Communion in prayer and with His Word. It's the Word that has this power to sanctify, to get our thinking in line with Scripture. It's the Lord's life within us there's only one way I can actually cover the, a, a multitude of sins of anyone. It's Christ in me doing that. It's Christ in me. It's more of his life that we need. That's the mark. Number one mark of living in light of eternity. May God write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow in prayer. Let's seek him together. Father in heaven, it's good to be forgiven. Certainly, Lord, good to be forgiven of our sins by thee. That's what matters more than anything. Lord, it's also good to be forgiven by thy people. We pray, Lord, that more of that spirit will grow, develop and flourish. Paul would even write to the the church at Thessalonica that was so fervent in love, he would pray that their love would increase. May our love increase, Lord particularly as we live with those who are sinners saved by grace. Keep keep us ever mindful of Jesus' love for us. Oh, for the grace and the power to show this love within the body of Christ continually. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen and amen.